Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Father Paul Rouse on the topic, Blessed Pierre Giorgio Frassati. This July 2008 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Father Paul Rouse is a Dominican priest and is currently a lecturer at the Catholic Theological College in Melbourne. Back in 1924, a young engineering student wrote to his dear sister, Luciani. In the letter, Frasati described yet another of his practical jokes. His good friend, Tina Benelli, had managed to persuade her parents to let her travel to England. The only reason she was given permission was because she would be travelling with the well-to-do lady, very well-respected lady, named Mrs. Bellia. Pierre Giorgio accompanied Tina to the train station, got everyone's attention with shouts and so forth, and then presented Tina with a box of lollies to farewell her. What Tina didn't know was that Pier Giorgio had tied all of the lollies together, <laughs> so that when Mrs. Bellier took one of them out, they all came out in a long string. <laughs> a year before his death, Pier Giorgio Frassati proved himself to be an active member of his circle of friends, the Tipi or the Sinister Ones. Among the saints and blessed who lived in the previous century, <clears throat> sure. there are few more intensely loved by those that know him than that holy terror, blessed Pier Giorgio Fossati. There was something about that young man from Polone, which is not far from Turin, which captures the Catholic imagination and devotion. St. Benedict's Church on Broadway, where Pier Giorgio's remains had been resting for the last week or so, uh, has welcomed the most remarkable spectrum of all kinds of people all of whom just wanted to get close to him. I myself had the honour of visiting his remains just about once every day that he was there. It was wonderful. Even the great servant of God, Pope John Paul II, made frequent mention of him during his own homilies and messages, something in order of about a dozen times. John Paul II knew of the young Frasati in his own boyhood. After a short visit to Frasati's tomb in 1989, the year before the Pope beatified him, he said, I too in my youth felt the beneficial influence of his example, and as a student I was impressed by the force of his Christian testimony. Our blessed reputation for sanctity had spread as far as Poland within a generation after his death. Pope Benedict too has presented Pier Giorgio Frasati to young people as a witness to the resurrection and as someone who inspires others to do the same. For us, though, who honour Frasati from an 83-year distance after his death, our devotion runs the danger of slipping into mere admiration rather than imitation. He could seem elusive to us because of the perceived contrast in holiness between him and us. Indeed, there is a great difference between us and any one of the blessed, but their state needn't be regarded as permanently unattainable. Sanctity isn't always simply caught. It's usually emulated and practised. So the example and witness of our Christian forebears are of great importance when we seek to grow in holiness, when we seek to live the Christian life. John Paul II had the power of witness in mind when his curious searched for and then found more saints than there had ever been before. In any case, Pier Giorgio's reputation for sanctity is only a very small part of a very rich story, much of which we can emulate in practice. 
Pier Giorgio is probably best known for two things, his fun-loving, outgoing nature and his charity to all, especially the poor. But neither is outstanding in itself. When we think of saints, we might consider the miracle workers or the great theological writers or the founders of holy congregations. But that's not Frasati in the slightest. I don't think Pier Giorgio ever worked a miracle during the course of his life. His letters are beautiful, but they're hardly theological treatises, and he certainly didn't start anything. But isn't that his genius? John Paul II said of Pier Giorgio that Frasati's lifestyle, quote, does not present anything out of the ordinary. This, however, is the originality of his virtue, the Pope continues, which invites us to reflect upon it and impels us to imitate it. The witness of Pier Giorgio Frasati's Christian life shows us how holiness is attainable. As I said, uh, Frasati's bodily remains were resting in St Benedict's Parish on Broadway for the last week or so, which is a very great blessing for that part of Sydney. But what was an even greater source of blessing were the various testimonies that we were given about Pier Giorgio and, and people's relationship to him. Uh, one, of, one fellow, one of our uh, middle-aged regulars at St Benedict's, had prayed three novenas last year, praying that Pier Giorgio would intercede that he could go and visit him in Turin. Well, it was Pier Giorgio's turn to make the pilgrimage, which, make, which makes uh, Pier Giorgio Fassati probably the holiest World Youth Day pilgrim. <laughs> but I'm sure he'll be joined by some of the St Michael's parishioners, sure. Tonight, I'd like us to reflect upon the life and virtues of Blessed Pier Giorgio Fassati. There's much we can learn from his life that will help us in ours. First, I'd like to give you my version, my impression of his life and times, very potted. And then I'd like to say a little about the virtues in general and what uh, John Paul II saw in Pier Giorgio. And finally, I'll identify the expressions of the virtues in Pier Giorgio and propose ways in which this holy terror can be both admired and imitated in our own lives. Pier Giorgio Frassati died on the 4th of July, 1925, but he was ready. He'd been ready for years. When news broke out of the beginning of the Great War, the so-called Great War in 1914, Pier Giorgio asked the family's domestic servant, Natalina, wouldn't you give your life to stop the war? After her negative answer, he replied, I would, I would today. It's true that religious sincerity can be judged by a person's attitude towards death. Frasati believed it to be the day of his deliverance. He was known to have said, I think the day of my death will be the most beautiful of my life. His years overarched the First World War, and he saw the decline and eventual exile of the Italian monarchy and the ascendancy of Italian fascism. When he died, the strong physique built up by his frequent visits to mountain cliffs and tardy dashes to dinner was by then wasted away by polio. This terrible disease is almost eradicated now with something like 2,000 cases reported in just 2005. But Pier Giorgio contracted it from the very people to whom he was ministering. It's fair to say that he spent some time most days of his adult life with someone in need of his charity. He meticulously kept an account book of all of his charitable works and from it we can put together a typical week which would look something like this. Sunday, shoes for a barefoot child. 
Monday, a room for a homeless woman. Tuesday, boots for an unemployed labourer. Wednesday, payment of a girl's school bill. Thursday, relocation for a blind veteran. Friday, groceries for a hungry family. And Saturday, medicine for an old man with bronchitis. Only to do it all again. The extent of his charitable works was truly extraordinary for a man of his years. Some of the most beautiful anecdotes from Pier Giorgio's life are about those when he helped a poor family with their accommodation or a sick man with his medicine. If not his deathbed, crippled and more by polio, his thoughts were for the poor he was due to visit that very day. In a collection of memories of her brother's life, Luciana, his sister, who's now dead, recounted how he had, in, had insisted on writing a note to his friend about some arrangements he was to make on his behalf. This is what the note read. Remember, this is the day before he died, and he has polio at the time. The injections are for Converso, and the pawn ticket belongs to Sapper. I have forgotten it. Please renew it on my account. The last written words of Pier Giorgio Fassati. When Fassati died, Mrs. Converso told the family how she had lost her greatest ally, the godfather of her daughter who had bought her baptismal dress for her, and a good friend to her once-imprisoned husband who'd had the habit of getting drunk and skipping work. Frasati joined the St Vincent de Paul Society at age 17, 1918. The so-called Great War had just concluded and soldiers were returning home with all kinds of health problems, including exposure, malnutrition and a new phenomenon to warfare, chemical warfare. Pier Giorgio had great sensitivity for the poor. He noticed them. His father, Alfredo Fassati, was appointed Italian ambassador to Berlin in 1920. Walking through the Berlin streets one night, Pier Giorgio noticed a man huddled in a corner. When he went over to him and gave him his overcoat, saying nothing, his father castigated his son for being so reckless with his own possessions. This was met with, but you see, Papa, it was cold. Pier Giorgio was especially tender-hearted towards those in emotional need as well. One story goes from Polone that he noticed that Ernesto Fasone, uh, the family's house porter, was upset. His only son had died at the age of 14. And Pier Giorgio comforted the lonely father. But of special importance for us is that Pier Giorgio remembered on the day a year later mentioned this to his father and told him that he would offer his Holy Communion that day for the repose of his soul. Pier Giorgio's labours for others catered for economic concerns, sure, but far surpassed them. Alfredo Frasati, the father, was also the owner and director of the Turin-based newspaper La Stampa. Typically centrist in its political orientation, which is what Frasati eventually ended up being, La Stampa was described by Luciana as her father's consuming passion. It basically got him out of the house. It was his golf. Luciana described La Stampa's role in her father's life as, and I quote her, his glory, his private kingdom away from the Polone household, which is the domain of my mother's family. Otherwise, Alfredo was not much involved in his children's lives, but he certainly wanted Pier Giorgio involved in his. The young Fasati began an engineering degree shortly after the First World War. Though he expressed the desire later in life to become a missionary and had no desire or calling for the priesthood, he understood becoming a mining engineer as tantamount to a religious vocation. 
I'm not sure whether there's any virtue in engineering, but certainly Pier Giorgio didn't think it incompatible with the Christian life. Frasati wanted to serve the miners because he believed they formed an exploited social class. He noticed them. With poor working conditions, long hours and below means wages. As far as the vocation was concerned, he was the marrying kind. A priestly vocation he feared would interfere with his charitable works. His sister said he was a priest at heart in layman's clothes. Pier Giorgio fell deeply in love with a girl from his circle of friends, Laura. Laura was a mathematics student at Turin's Polytechnic University. Her friends would describe her as not especially pretty, but kind-hearted. She, like Pier Giorgio, was a member of Catholic Action at the time. His plan was to marry Laura, though she never knew this. And she had good reason to think him worthy of taking up her hand in marriage when, she, when he popped the question. Pierre Giorgio's niece, who never met him in life, gave a very moving testimony to thousands of young people about him. And I quote her, God gave Pierre Giorgio all the external attributes that could have led him to making the wrong moral choices. A wealthy family, very good looks, manhood, health, and being the only heir of a powerful family. To an outsider, Pierre Giorgio had it all. When a great friend of mine was working for a bank, not which bank. She had a portrait of uh, Pierre Giorgio on her desk. And not a few times did she hear, wow, Mary, your boyfriend's really hot. <laughs> it was quite an opener, she tells me, for a little evangelization of his inspiration. <laughs> True to form, his father disapproved of Laura because he wanted his son, his son to marry someone of high social status, like themselves, of course. His parents' marriage was often in danger of suffering a major fracture, major permanent fracture. And Pierre Giorgio was only too aware that his own union to Laura would place extra strain on his parents' already fragile relationship. So he called it off with Laura. And his parents never divorced. I don't let me give the impression it was all smooth sailing after he did. They were basically separated under the same roof. Towards the end of his ultimately unfinished engineering degree, this is 1925 now, Pier Giorgio got word through his father's colleague at La Stampa that Alfredo expected his son to take up an administrative job in the newspaper's accounting section. Alfredo knew of Pier Giorgio's frequenting of Catholic clubs and societies, of which he disapproved, his charitable work which he couldn't understand, and that this request of his would deeply wound his son and yet he pushed on and asked him anyway. That was how his father operated. The atheism that he clung to in his political agenda in combating Italian fascists was important to him. Their influence was growing considerably in the early 20th century until their 1922 takeover, and combined with a strained marriage made for a very unhappy Frasati patriarch and a troubled home life. At the dinner table, his sister recounts that the two Frasati men would sit opposite one another. The father was all pragmatism, concerned for the affairs of the world. The son was all transcendence, concerned for what is beyond. Among the more pernicious aspects of Italian fascism, for example, one was its anti-clericalism, and it eventually crippled the country in the course of the Second World War. Everyone felt the effect of fascism even in daily life. Train drivers, for example, didn't need much of an excuse to strike. 
cries of, there's a priest on board, but alone a Dominican, mind you, uh, would set them off. Or there's someone with clean nails would get, get give them opportunity to strike. It's strange, bizarre. So Alfredo would have regarded his son's participation in his newspaper a necessary step to ensure the family's strong and public opposition to fascism, and also a personal commitment of his son to working against the movement by personal loyalty to him. Pier Giorgio's employment at La Stampa would also speak to Alfredo's own principles, but he was a consistent man. What, held, what he held to in the public, he fostered at home with his son, obviously. And no doubt there's some integrity in that. We should be consistent. But for Alfredo, his son's future was the guarantee of the future of his paper and his career. One secured the other. Pier Giorgio's taking up a desk job at La Stampa would also assist Alfredo and his wife Adelaide to stay together as husband and wife. <coughs> Pier Giorgio, of course, reluctantly agreed to work for the paper. If all this will please Papa, he said. But he fell sick before completing his degree, let alone working at La Stampa. Pier Giorgio's home life was otherwise very ordinary. His maternal grandmother is the one to whom we're indebted for passing on the faith and piety though Pier Giorgio was an avid reader of the Bible and spiritual books, so his grandmother shouldn't take all the credit. But they were very close and died only a few days apart, she before him. Are there not a good number of grandparents in our own time who are teaching their grandchildren the tenets of the faith? Frasati's mother, Adelaide, was an amateur painter. This might help to explain Pier Giorgio's great love of the arts, because he used to recite the cantos of Dante, pacing up and down to, uh, with it being said of him, Pier Giorgio is beginning his preaching, who knows when it will stop. Even after a day's bike ride from Polone to Turin with his friend Bell and Jerry, so more than a couple of hours, he'd delay the bath or rest, and in its place would come a beautiful, uninterrupted recital of the most beautiful and well-loved Italian poetry. He even wrote out the prayer Our Lady Dante places, uh, sorry, prayer to Our Lady that Dante places on the lips of Saint Bernard in the Divine Comedy, and kept the note as a holy cup. But his love of the arts was not matched by gifts or talents in all of them. As a young fellow, he found piano lessons torture. While that's very unfortunate in itself, to musicians and people with good pitch, he responded in kind by singing. Sing he couldn't. During one procession, when Pier Giorgio was singing with extra gusto, his neighbours begged him to keep his moans to a whisper. <laughs> but the important thing is to sing, came the reply. I started the presentation with an account of one of Pier Giorgio's practical jokes. He was a merciless tease and loved to pull pranks on those in his circle of friends. They even called Pier Giorgio Fracassati referring to the noise he himself, the fracas, which he would produce in a, in a gathering. But what he loved even more than pulling a practical joke was being on the receiving end of someone else's prank or trap. His friend Tina, who was often involved in Pier Giorgio's jokes, got the better of him in February of 1925. Pier Giorgio's group had gone for a skiing trip and Tina had decided that she'd stay behind. The group stopped for dinner one night, during which a young boy came in, and asked Pier Giorgio some questions and then gave him a note which read, If you are brave enough, come outside. Signed, a fascist from Turin. Now it's worth remembering to you that the fascists had invaded, actually stormed the Frasati household uh, a couple of years before, 
and Frasati himself had beaten them off, quite literally, it's regarded as a local hero. So our hero was ready to send these fascists back to school. He showed the note to one of the group who managed to convince him not to go outside, but if he did, he'd have found Tina Benelli dressed like an Apache. Tina later came in to where they were having dinner and was applauded loudly for the joke. It was great, he said, as he wrote to his friend Marco about the false fascist. Pier Giorgio really appreciated the pranks played on him as much as he enjoyed pulling them himself. Since I mentioned fascism, it's also worth considering Pier Giorgio's political allegiances, which could be confused. Some might argue that Frassati was far too politically active against the fascists and against the communists to be of great example to us. There are stories of him going to public rallies, fending off the attacks of black-shirted fascists with the Royal Italian Tricolour, and attending meetings of political parties. Many of the accounts of uh, Pio Giorgio's involvement in populist actions are true. One from 1921 goes that during a procession of the Italian Catholic youth, which had just received the Pope's blessing at the Vatican, making its way down towards the tomb of the unknown soldier, uh, some of the, the louds in the group shouted, long live the Pope King, as a reference to the, the Vatican State and so forth. The club's banner bearer himself was personally attacked by the royal guards who had come to put down the uprising. Pier Giorgio seized the banner and its broken pole, rallying his friends in protest. When the guards turned on Fossati himself, he was arrested. But he told the lieutenant of the guard his family name, which at that point was the name of his senatorial father, and was released on his own, uh, on his own condition that those who were with him were released too. But the amazing thing then is that Pier Giorgio led the group in a rosary for us and those who have hit us. He wasn't a communist or a fascist, but Pier Giorgio wasn't conservative in the narrowest sense of the term either. About one member of parliament from one of the conservative parties, he wrote, to that one, let's send some naphtalene so that he'll be better conserved. In 1921, Fasati joined the Catholic Party of the day, which was known as the Popular Party, and was an active member. But all of his political action then should be seen in the context of much wider involvement in just about every organisation that he came in contact with. More than eight, I counted eight, but I'm sure there are many, many more. Among them were various student associations, sure, but also the Society of St Vincent de Paul, as I mentioned, the Milites Maria, or Soldiers of Mary, which is a group of young Catholic workers, and I don't mind telling you, the Dominican Tertiaries. While I cannot propose to you that joining the Dominicans is virtuous for everyone, it is commendable. And when the Popular Party joined Mussolini's first coalition government in 1922, Frasati expressed disappointment. He wrote, where are our beautiful policies now? Where is the faith that animates our members? Unfortunately, when it comes to climbing the ladder of worldly success, men tend to trample on their own conscience. Together with those who knew him best, we must conclude that Pier Giorgio had a great spirit of participation, getting in there and having a go. That fire of youth which urged him to get in there and do something. That spirit, that fire, also meant that he came to blows regularly, and sometimes literally, with the ruling regime, whoever they might be, in their predictable crimes against human dignity. Pier Giorgio Frassati was more concerned for the promotion and the spread of justice than he was about who was defending it. 
As Pope John Paul II said, Pier Giorgio's life stands out for its ordinariness, especially when it came to troubles that he experienced. He had many, and many that we ourselves do not. But he was a holy man, and pleased God a great saint, Santo Subito. When his bodily remains were at St. Benedict's, I'm not sure there was one moment when the church was left alone, when he was left alone. Someone was with him most times. And we have good reason to spend time with him to ask his intercession. So he's at St. Mary's Cathedral, don't delay. Mm -hmm. Frasati's admirers often remark that he used to put Christ between himself and his friends. And he was right to do so. Christ calls us his friends. And so there's every reason to expect that to secure a friendship, Pier Giorgio would call on Christ. His friendships were lively and the bonds strong, usually. The displays accompanying the bodily remains of Pier Giorgio during their time in Australia frequently show him with other people, smiling and laughing with friends, usually, and occasionally with his family, too. He thrived on people's company and sought out the quieter members of a group in order to bring them in on the fun and make sure they were experiencing everything he was. But Pier Giorgio had, in fact, very few close friends. Sure, there are people who, with whom he mucked in with. He played practical jokes on and shared grand experiences. But there were only a very small number of people to whom he opened his heart. One author suggests this discerning attitude Pier Giorgio when it came to his closest companions was because he had a high concept of affection, modelled after Christ's own. I call you friends because I've made known to you everything I've learned from my father. But I suspect also that having a few close friends ensured that he didn't stretch himself too far. His relationships among all sorts of people sapped him of his vitality. He once said about this, I feel like someone who's drowning and has to find the strength for one more stroke. He allowed himself the room to move when pressed hard by those who needed him most by being highly selective of his close friends. And the ones who needed Pier Giorgio most were not found in a large circle of friends, but among the poor. In the poor, he found Christ. Around the poor, the unfortunate, he said, I see a particular light which we do not have. Frasati had to work with and among the poor or risk missing an encounter with Christ. It was simple as that. Well, it was that, but it was also that there was hope of adding to his treasury in heaven. He said, I have a bank that gives a thousand percent. But for Pier Giorgio, Christ was to be found everywhere. He certainly found Christ in the poor and on the altar, and was convinced that young Catholics should receive the Blessed Sacrament well and often. For him, frequent and devout Holy Communion was about gathering all the graces available to him and about creating and sustaining peace of mind and purity of heart. His devotion to the Blessed Sacrament in Holy Communion and Adoration was impressive. There are lovely stories of him falling asleep during Adoration, of winning bets with his friends, which their part would be going to Adoration. But I'd like to read to you now an extended quote about the Eucharist, which was taken from the speech that he gave to the Catholic Youth Association in his hometown, probably shortly after his 21st birthday. Feed on this bread of angels, and from it you will gain the strength to fight your own inner battle, the battle against passion and all adversities. Because Jesus Christ has promised those who feed on the Holy Eucharist eternal life, 
and the graces necessary to attain it. And when you are totally consumed by this Eucharistic fire, then you will be more able to consciously thank God who has called you to become part of that multitude. And you will enjoy that peace that those who are happy in accordance with this world have never experienced. Because true happiness does not consist in the pleasures of the world or in earthly things, but in peace of conscience, which we only have if we are pure in heart and mind. Prasati also read St Paul's letters and uh, commended their being read by others. Here's something for all of you for the Pauline year which we're in. He said, I'd like you to try and read St Paul. It's wonderful and the spirit is cheered and ennobled by reading him. It spurs us on to follow the right way and to return, return to it whenever we leave through sin. Pierre Giorgio had copied out St Paul's hymn to love in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians and carried it with him. Love is always kind, never jealous, and so forth. He was no gong booming or symbol clashing. Pierre Giorgio also had a great devotion to the Virgin Mother of God. He referred to the Rosary as my testament or my Bible, which could evoke for us uh, John Paul II's proposing of the Rosary as a compendium of the Gospel, a rich term which he borrowed from Pius XII and Paul VI. He prayed the Rosary daily and often fell asleep as a child while saying it. Once when Pier Giorgio was a young boy, his unbelieving father found him asleep on the floor with the rosary in his hand. When Alfredo Frasati complained to the parish priest that he was falling asleep while saying his prayers, or your prayers, the reply went something like this. Perhaps you'd rather have him fall asleep with a dirty novel. His devotion to the Blessed Mother was such that he made rosaries from seeds found in his family garden and he presented these to his friends as gifts. But Pier Giorgio is a very lovable, all-round kind of fellow. When he had a puff of his first cigar, he took to it instantly, and from then on smoked the cheapest, nastiest Tuscan cigars, because my mother does. <laughs> he outright refused to eat chicken skin, and Pier Giorgio uh, passionately loved the music of Verdi, despite his family's preference for Wagner. Pier Giorgio had a long-standing interest in insects and, mir and minerals. His sister tells us that ever, ever since his boyhood, he came home with his pockets full and used his sandals as, as bags, carrying with him stones and pebbles and crystals. And he died at 24, ready for his Lord. At the time of his funeral, a journalist at La Stampa wrote, In all this crowd of common people pressing round Pier Giorgio's mortal remains, there was something unique, something of a mystery. Everything could have been explained if this had been a famous person. An important life ended. But this was only a young man, a student. His life was just beginning. He'd given very little of himself as yet. Before going any further in our look into Pier Giorgio's short and full life and his heroic virtues, it's useful to consider what we're looking for in him. Some read the lives of the saints in the expectation that they will be inspired to become the saint themselves, and this is a good thing. Uh, and it's not a bad thing to come to know them better so as to be friendly, remember they're living in heaven. But tonight you've come here to hear about his life and virtues. And I want to concentrate on the theological virtues of faith, hope and love, as opposed to, for example, the cardinal virtues. I need to look at my list to remember them. Prudence, temperance, courage and justice. 
the life of theological virtue, and that's the reason why I've chosen it, is because, uh, sorry, is that we've already begun it in baptism, even if we feel that those three virtues are very small in us. But we are already, in some way, by virtue of baptism, faithful, hopeful, and loving people. So we're on the way. The point that I wish to make, then, is that the good things Frasati did in his life are within our reach, too. We're not unfamiliar with the life of virtue Frasati had to live, because in part it's our story too. The journey has begun, and others we know have successfully completed it. So to look to Frasati's example and witness for our foothold towards holiness in our own lives, I thought we'd eventually visit what the servant of God, John Paul II, said about Frasati in his Beatification homily. His homily gives us an idea of what the Pope thought was important about him, and why we should look to Pier Giorgio for his good example and authentic Christian witness. In general, the virtues are dispositions that we have, habits which govern our actions and guide our conduct according to reason and the faith. So when we perform some virtuous deed, we grow in virtue. In fact, we grow a little in virtue whenever we act well. Acts drawing on the faith lead me to grow also in hope and love. The virtues all grow together. Prudence leads me to grow in temperance and justice and courage altogether. So you can't say I'm going to work on faith this year and not have hope and love trailing close behind. With time and practice, virtuous action, of course, becomes easier. So if you're a courageous person, you will tend to act courageously when called upon. All the virtues lead us towards beatitude or happiness. This term beatitude or happiness also has us look towards terms like felicity and flourishing. Flourishing being a term which is drawn on by the Aristotelian scholars at the moment. Our beatitude or happiness is twofold. This is from St Thomas. One concerns happiness in our human nature in this life, and the other kind of happiness is only attained by the power of God. So the first point to note about the virtues is that there are different categories of virtue, and not all of them are strictly dependent on baptism for us to practice them. While the three theological virtues are infused in us in Christian baptism and are nourished and built up by the performance of acts of faith, hope and charity in the course of our lives, other kinds of virtue are within the grasp of all people of goodwill simply because they possess an intellect and reason. The virtue of justice, for example, can be practised by a non-Christian just as much as by a Christian. We're to give what's due to our neighbour in justice, it's a requirement of being human. But the act of doing so is the virtues, the habit, the disposition. The virtue of prudence, for example, which governs all the other moral virtues, is simply correct reason, act, correct reason acted upon. God's gift of sacramental grace is not always to be found in the prudent person, though it helps, of course, enormously. You don't have to know about or believe in God's existence as the Blessed Trinity to do what's right and just. Doing what's right and choosing what is best in our everyday life is not a particularly Christian attribute as much as it is a human one. And our secular society knows all about virtue too, don't they? Virtues in the common mindset, though, are a little, are a little different, and they're qualities like acceptance or non-violence or tolerance. And while these are present in the modern person often enough, and they're good things for us to practice too, I suppose, uh, they're not virtues in the strict sense. 
non-violence and tolerance and other qualities like them do not of themselves point us towards moral excellence and eventual happiness in this life or the next. Qualities like these are much more often bound up with political correctness, perhaps, than they are with personal goodness and flourishing. For what it's worth, at this point, in his general audience on the 25th of June, Pope Benedict said, Tolerance that does not know how to distinguish between good and evil would become chaotic and self-destructive. Perhaps the virtue popular culture promotes as tolerance is better known, or is closer to, prudence or justice or charity. These will lead us to moral goodness, and in the case of charity, also to life with God. But the popular virtue of tolerance, for example, in itself is not a virtue, and we do well to reconsider our actions if we regard this as being the motivation for them. But we're concerning ourselves tonight with the theological virtues of faith, hope and love, or charity. The theological virtues are attained because we've become sharers in the divine life of Christ through baptism. Acts of faith, hope and charity are truly encounters with God. So if you do a deed in love, you encounter God in the other person. The Lord Jesus' whole life enables our faith, hope and love in this life with a view to the next. We're able to see this, for example, in the Lord's resurrection and his ascension and the descent of the Holy Spirit on the Apostles and Our Lady. So I'd like to reflect for a moment on these three events in our salvation. Because in these three glorious mysteries, we see how human nature is literally transformed and raised up. United body and soul once again in heaven, with God, and honoured by him in the meantime by the outpouring of grace. This transformation which the resurrection, ascension, and the Spirit's Pentecost descent effects in the human person has ramifications, of course, in the next life, but also in this one, which is all about virtue. Our faith is dependent on the resurrection. It's though our faith begins in earnest on Easter Sunday. St Paul tells us that if Christ is not risen, then our faith is in vain. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the cornerstone of our faith. Everything begins from there. The eternal Son of God, in his divine nature, assumed a human nature like ours and rose from the dead in that same human nature. And so we who share his human nature, though not the divine one, begin our transformation in Christ by the grace of baptism, for it starts. We share the death of Christ in our bodies in baptism, so that Christ who died in the flesh, our bodies, would give us the eternal inheritance he won for us on Easter Sunday. In baptism we draw on the death and resurrection of the Lord, and by grace, what Christ is by nature, we become, a son of God or a daughter of the Most High. So the resurrection shapes our identity as Catholic Christians. All of the Church's doctrine starts from here, starts from faith, starts from the resurrection. And in faith, through baptism, we commit ourselves to all that God has taught us, and all that he teaches us through the Holy Spirit, who leads us into all the truth. So we believe in God, and we trust that what he says is true. And we cannot see what it is, uh, and who it is that we believe in, and so we hope. The theological virtue of hope is partner to faith because hope is the desire for what we believe in, for what we hold by faith. Pope Benedict made this point about the closeness of faith and hope in Spaisalvi, his encyclical. He began with passages of the New Testament in which faith and hope are used almost interchangeably. For example, the letter to the Hebrews refers to our confession of hope, 
rather than as we would expect perhaps in the New Testament, our confession of faith. The Holy Father then establishes an understanding of these two theological virtues which might have been new to some of us. Just to be clear, faith is hope insofar as the source, content and conclusion are the same. That's God. And he loves us unto the death of his son on the cross. In the Lord's ascension, hope is born. We no longer see him, and yet we hope for him. We know that our baptism is helpful. It means that where he has gone, we hope to follow. And so like the disciples after the ascension, we too can be joyful and faithful to him because we hope in him. In his homily for the Beatification Mass, John Paul II made mention of the virtue of hope when first referring to Frasati. It's as though this is what the Pope first noticed about him. Pier Giorgio is also known as the man of the Beatitudes, a, a reference which comes from the same homily, but he referred to his virtue of hope first, even before man of the Beatitudes. John Paul said, The power of the spirit of truth given at Pentecost, united to Christ, made Fasati a modern witness to the hope which springs from the gospel and to the grace of salvation which works in human hearts. Fasati, the Pope was keen to point out to us, lived differently because he hoped. The presence of this theological virtue in a person's life means that their outlook on reality, on life in general, is better because of God. And hope can be concerned for the formation and building up of the Christian community too. Pope Benedict pointed this out in his encyclical, and I quote him, We see how decisively the self-understanding of the early Christians was, shaped by their having received the gift of a trustworthy hope, when we compare the Christian life with the life prior to faith, or with the situation of followers of other religions. So living in hope will define a Christian's words and deeds as a Christian. Hope gives us new perspective on reality, that of God who sees all. In hope we see things in the light of what God has done, is doing and will do in the future, but particularly in the future. It makes the person cling to God as the source of utter goodness, that he will give us final beatitude, which is in heaven with him and all the saints. Hope answers and expresses the desire for happiness which God has placed deep in the human heart and which only he can completely satisfy. In Fasati, hope coloured his life. He was a hope-filled man, and such is his example that will assure us of good things in the present and fill us with confidence about the future, both in God and in this life. But the crown of the theological virtues is charity. This theological virtue gives outward expression to the other two. Charity is also the only virtue which we will practice in heaven. It's the one that endures past death into eternal life and is the sign of the communion of saints. Saints pray for us out of love for us and in God. St Paul is clear that charity is the difference between life and death. What with gongs booming and cymbals clashing, the unloving person cannot be holy because faith and hope inspire and return love of God and neighbour. Love gives us freedom from a servile fear of God and of others but enlivens us also to come to know and love God who loved us first. After the ascension, the disciples hid themselves away in the upper room with the mother of Jesus and some of the other women. This band of followers of Jesus was bound together by a common love of the one Lord Jesus Christ. He had brought them together because of his absence from them in the flesh. 
when the Spirit came upon them, their faith and hope flamed out in love for their Lord and for others who needed to know him as they did. So we can ascribe love or charity as our inspiration when the church evangelizes. So accusations that the church is out to control or manipulate when she teaches all nations are best answered with love. The desire to bring others to the graces we've received in baptism and the other sacraments is best described as an act of love, an act of charity. In his Beatification homily, John Paul II told us how Frasati practised faith and love inseparably, as they should be for all of us, for faith without works is death. Faith inspires the believer to seek and know God's will, while love or charity is the carrying out of God's will, which the Lord encapsulated in the commandments of love of God and neighbour. Now in Pierre Giorgio it's very easy to see his charity towards all. And St James is right, of course, I by my works will show you my faith. But we remember that Pierre Giorgio's faith was expressed in prayer too. I've mentioned his devotion to the Eucharist, his devotion to the Rosary, and the reading of the Scriptures. This is all ordinary, as John Paul would say for Sati, and is not outside the realm of possibility for us. If John Paul II was right about Frasati, and I believe he was, that Frasati's ordinariness is the key to the greatness of his witness, then what will become important about our blessed virtues will be their outward expression. <coughs> How Pierre Giorgio lived the same ordinary faith, hope and love we're all called to and have will bring out the difference between him and us and show us what comes next in our own life of virtue. On the score of faith and love, I said that these two are the easiest to identify in Pierre Giorgio's life because of his considerable labours of love and charity. The help he gave to so many poor and sick around him, many of whom were anonymous to him and remain so to us, speaks eloquently to the strength of his Christian convictions. He was known to be Christian because he loved much. But on the score of faith itself, there's still a good deal we can learn from Pier Giorgio. His faith was so important to him that it was regularly offered to others too. After the First World War, he said to one soldier, in fact, he just about ordered him, why don't you gather a group of young soldiers every Sunday and bring them to St. Secondo's? The following Sunday, 20 soldiers from that same company showed up to Sunday Mass. They didn't know Frasati and they went to Holy Communion. Pier Giorgio cherished his faith and knew what it did for a person, especially in difficult times. In prayer, he said, the soul rises above life's sadnesses. He wrote this in a missal he gave someone who returned to Mass again after encountering him. Sharing his faith with others, stirring others up in their fervour and prayer, was as life-giving as the faith itself for Pier Giorgio. The gentle prompting of others, offering the suggestion of Mass and the sacraments, of devotions and prayers, might just be what our neighbour needs to rekindle their relationship with Christ, the source of all the virtues. In their beatitude, their final happiness in heaven, they could have you to thank for, for your intercession intervention. I'd like to begin my conclusion with Pierre Giorgio's hope. It was said of him that he was consistently content within himself. His aunt wrote to his mother in April 1922 about the time of Pierre Giorgio's 21st birthday. This is what she wrote. Today I've hardly seen him. School, then Signor Farina to draw, meeting, lesson with the teacher who's helping him, 
He rushes in late with, excuse me, I'm late. He's well, and he no longer has the tram season ticket. I think we can guess where that went. And he goes by bicycle, and I think this gives him a better appetite. He'll have to study a lot, and he needs to keep his strength up. I try to look after him as well as I can. But he's always happy with everything. He's always happy with everything. The person who has hope need not be too concerned with all the little things that might go wrong, that might be lacking in a situation, because God already has the final outcome in mind. Pierre Giorgio's hope made him quite happy in himself in this life, though life couldn't be without its disappointments. A Catholic can't but be happy, he once remarked. The path we take may be full of thorns, but not sad. It's happy through pain, and in these days I rejoice and am cheerful. Our view of life informed and coloured by true hope, Christian hope, gives us assurances in this life. It also helps us with priorities, with getting a grip on what really matters. But it can be hard to imitate and practice hope. We do so by regular appraisal of what we already have, of what we desire. If our own affairs, our own lives are in order and we're frugal about fulfilling all of our wants, then we can expect to grow in hope because we're not flooded with unnecessary distractions and self-procured indulgences. Hope affords us what some would eventually call peace of mind. In Frasati, John Paul II would have us see a man who both lived the gospel and shared it with others, who drew others to the God who can be trusted, hoped for and loved. If we were to be honest with ourselves, we'd have to say that Frasati also arranged it that others would join him leading others into the same graces of which he availed himself frequently. His is a great inspiration to make Christ's message in all its richness dwell in your hearts. But as a final word before a prayer, I'd like to add that one area in which Pierre Giorgio should not be imitated, but only admired, perhaps, is that when he made up the beds on camps for the priests, he used to give them short sheets. <laughs> Our holy terror didn't leave priests and religious out of the fun he had. So let us pray. O merciful God, who through the perils of the world deign to preserve by your grace your servant Pier Giorgio Frassati, pure of heart and ardent of charity. Listen, we ask you to his prayers. And if it is in your designs that he be glorified by the church, show us your will, granting us the graces we ask of you through his intercession by the merits of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Father Paul Rouse. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.